if you knew that you only had one week to live, how would you spend it? If you knew that you had one week to live, what would you do? Personally, I probably wouldn't leave the side of my wife and kids. I'd spend lots of quality time with family and friends. I would eat copious amounts of steak and ice cream. I'd probably, and I hope it's okay to say this, buy a really, really, really nice bottle of single malt whiskey. I'd probably try to watch every sunrise, every sunset. I'd write some letters and record some videos. I'd listen to my favorite albums. What about you? If you had one week to live, how would you spend it? Well, today, as Ben mentioned, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series called The Final Days of Jesus, the week that changed the world. And we are going on a journey with Jesus through the final week of his life. And we're looking at the question, how did Jesus spend his final week? What did he do and why does it matter? Now, this is actually an incredibly important question. Now, there are four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry in the New Testament. We call them Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And about one-third of all the material in those four Gospels is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. We are told barely nothing about Jesus' childhood, even less about his teenage and early adulthood years. But one-third of the Gospels is devoted to the final week of his life. It's the gospel writer's way of telling us this week is really, really important. But I wonder how much you know about Jesus' final week. You probably know how it started. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey to to great crowds. It's what we know as Palm Sunday. You probably know, or, or I'd say you definitely know how it ended with his crucifixion on the Friday and his resurrection on the Sunday. So you probably know how it started. You probably know how it ended But what happened in between? What did Jesus do in his final week and why does it matter? This is what we're looking at in this series and we're looking at it through the lens of Luke's gospel. As I mentioned, there's four gospels and and we'll be focusing our time in Luke. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, Luke is actually part one of a two-part work. The gospel of Luke is part one and the book of Acts is part two. And both those books tell one continuous story. And we're actually going to be looking at the book of Acts, or the start of it, in term two. So the final chapters of Luke's gospel is going to give us good lead-up information for when we launch into Acts. Secondly, the reason that we're focusing on Luke is the reason why Luke wrote this gospel. Now, Luke was a doctor, a physician, and he was also a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And he writes his gospel to a man named Theophilus. This is what he says in chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4. He says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke has carefully investigated Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, interviewed eyewitnesses, corroborated evidence, and now he's laid it all out in an orderly account. So that Theophilus, this ancient figure, and you and I can have certainty about Jesus. This is why we're doing this series. This is our hope for this series, that we all might have 
certainty about Jesus, that we might be moved to a deeper trust in Jesus. I mean, if your faith is in Jesus, which I know many of us is, we hope that you will be moved to a deeper level of trust and intimacy with Jesus. If your faith is not yet in Jesus, our hope and our prayer is that you'll begin to see that the good news of Jesus can be good news for you, that it can change your life for good and forever. And this leads us to another reason we're doing this series, and that is it will take us up to one of the high points of our year, Easter. We want you to use this series as an opportunity to invite your friends to investigate the claims of Jesus, to invite them to come along to this series, to come along to an Easter service, to come along to Easter on the lawn, so that they might explore for themselves the things that Jesus said and did. Now, as always, we have growth group guides available for this series. I hope that you'll grab one of those. This shows us where we're going in this series, and it gives you resources to dig deeper. Now, today, to give us some context, to help us get our bearings, to help us know where we're picking up the story, I've put together this basic timeline. It gives you just a general summary of Jesus' final week. Now, as I've already mentioned, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a Sunday. He is most likely around March 29, AD 33. He'd been making his way down from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, which was in the south. And he arrived in the city of Jerusalem to great fanfare. It was kind of like an ancient ticker tape parade. There was people everywhere, but Jesus wasn't, you know, riding on the back of a convertible waving to everybody. He was actually riding on the back of a donkey. And people weren't throwing streamers, they were laying palm fronds at his feet. They were hailing his arrival. That's why it's become known as Palm Sunday. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, we're told that he then goes to visit the temple, the center of Jewish religious life. Now, he obviously saw something there that he didn't like because he goes back the next day on the Monday, not to visit the temple, but to cleanse it. I mean, Jesus arrives in the temple complex and he starts to act a bit like a bouncer. He starts throwing people out. People who are more interested in making a profit than offering prayers. And the religious leaders, that those in charge of the temple, they were indignant. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is acting this way? In fact, you get to the end of Luke 19 after Jesus has done this and we read about the religious leaders. They were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And this gives us some good background to the passage that we'll be looking at today in Luke chapter 20, which took place on the Tuesday. You see, Jesus goes back to the temple and the religious leaders are waiting for him. In fact, you could almost title this passage, The Showdown at the Temple. If our, if our Bibles made a sound when we open them, when you open them to Luke 20, it would be ding, ding. I mean, the fight is about to begin. The gloves are off. The religious leaders, they want to take Jesus out. And what we see in this passage is there are three main episodes of conflict. The religious leaders come to Jesus three times to challenge him on three different issues each designed to trip him up and take him out. What we see is a question about authority in verses 1 to 19, 
a question about taxes in verses 20 to 26, and a question about the future in verses 27 to 40. And so I'm going to briefly walk us through each episode of conflict, and then at the end, we're going to pull out some lessons for you and for me. And I think that these are incredibly important lessons, because what we see in this passage is the religious leader's response to Jesus. We see why they rejected Jesus. And the truth is, the reasons are the same reasons that some people still reject Jesus to this day. So let's begin with, number one, a question about authority. This is what the religious leaders say to Jesus in verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? What gives you the right to throw people out of the temple, to preach and teach in the temple? Who do you think you are? Now remember, Jesus was wildly popular with the people, but he had no official position or titles. He was outside the religious and political establishment. What gives him the right to do these things that he's doing? This is what the religious leaders are asking him. Now, either way, Jesus answered the question, he was going to be in trouble. If he says, I have no authority, well, he'll be in trouble with the Jews and he'll just be thrown out of the temple. If he said, I have divine authority, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. They were always on the lookout for would-be messiahs, especially during Passover week, as it was. What is Jesus going to do? Well, as he often did, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus answers their question with a question. And it is a brilliant question because it turns the tables on them. Jesus asks them whether John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus' ministry, the one who testified that Jesus was the promised Messiah, he asks them whether his authority was from God or from man. Now, if the religious leaders said that John the Baptist's authority was from God, then Jesus would simply say, why didn't you accept him? And why didn't you accept what he said about me? If they said that his authority was from man, then they knew they would have a riot on their hands. Because John the Baptist was incredibly popular with the people. Most regarded him as a prophet from God. So what are the religious leaders going to do? They can either admit Jesus' divine authority or they can risk losing the acceptance of the crowd. Here's what they do, verse 7. We don't know where it was from. They back down. Jesus wins the argument, but see, it's not really about winning the argument. This shows us the response of the religious leaders. They are confronted with divine authority. They are confronted with truth. But rather than admit what is right in front of them, they back down because of their fear. Their fear of losing their power and their position. Jesus exposes them. And you and I might back off at that point having done it, but that's not what Jesus does. He actually drives his point home by telling a parable. And even without going into the details of the parable, the point is obvious. The religious leaders, their authority is being removed by God. And it's being replaced by Jesus and his followers. And you know what? They get it. They understand Jesus' point and it makes them furious. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But again, they were afraid of the people. 
So this is the first episode of the conflict in the temple, but it's not finished, not by a long shot. They keep plotting, they keep scheming to take Jesus out, and they come at him this time with a question about taxes. Now, I know that doesn't sound like the most thrilling topic, does it? I did tax law at uni, and I've got to tell you, it's not the most thrilling topic. But you see, Jesus has in mind a particular tax. The Jews, the, 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 the people of God, they were ruled over by the Romans. And the Romans made them pay for, the priv- for that privilege, which the Jews deeply resented. I mean, imagine for a moment, and you've got to use your imagination you know, really strongly. Imagine if New Zealand somehow invaded Australia and they were successful, somehow. You know, they, they remove our government, they install their own government, and they make us pay tax to them. I don't know about you, but I would not like that one bit. And this is kind of what the Jews are feeling. They deeply resented this tax that they had to pay to the Romans. And so this is the issue that the religious leaders try to trip Jesus up on. They say to him in verse 22, Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now again, if Jesus said, No, don't worry about paying the tax, He could be arrested by the Romans. If Jesus said yes, he could be seen as a traitor to his own people. What would he do? What should he do? Well, what he does do is brilliant. Verse 24, he says, Show me a denarius, a coin about a day's wage, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they reply. Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, Jesus is saying, if the people used the Roman currency, which they did, if they were lived under Roman rule, which they did, then it's appropriate for them to pay tax to Rome. And, and this lines up with what the Bible has to say elsewhere about our relationship to government. We should be law-abiding citizens, which includes paying tax. But that's not all that Jesus says. He goes on and he adds at the end, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, if it is appropriate to give back to Caesar the things that bear his image, then it's even more appropriate to give back to God the things that bear his image. And what's that? It's you and I. We are like God's coins. We bear God's image. We belong to him. We should give ourselves to him. And so Jesus is saying, yes, Caesar has a right to collect your tax, but God has a right to collect your worship. Give a portion of your money to Caesar, but give all of yourself to God. And so Jesus has once again exposed the religious leaders. They come trying to play games and set traps, and Jesus just springs their trap yet again. And you would think at this point they'd be finished. You think, all right, this guy has wiped the floor with us twice. We're going to back off a little bit here. But they don't. They come again and they try to take Jesus out this time with a question about the future. And this time it's a group called the Sadducees who question Jesus. They were a small but wealthy group of Jewish religious leaders. They served at the temple but they had some pretty funky beliefs. They denied the existence of the supernatural, miracles, angels and so forth, which means they denied the prospect of a future resurrection. And it's on this point that they try to trap Jesus. They come up with this imagined scenario to try and make the resurrection seem ridiculous. 
See, there was a law in the Old Testament that said if a husband died, then his brother had to marry his widow to provide an heir for her deceased husband. And so the Sadducees essentially say, well, if this is the case, what if the husband dies, the brother marries the wife, but then the brother dies, and then the next brother dies, and then the next brother dies, and then the next brother dies, and this this happens seven times. Now, I've got to admit, at this point, you're probably asking questions of the wife. (laughs) What are you putting in their eggs? But the Sadducees want to know, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I mean, that's going to be a pretty confusing family reunion, isn't it? Now, the Sadducees think that this is a slam dunk, but Jesus is not bothered at all. And the mistake that the Sadducees have made is they assume that life in the age to come, it will be exactly the same as life now. But Jesus says that's just not the case. In fact, Jesus actually says in verse 36 that we will be like the angels. Now, he doesn't mean we will, he doesn't say we will be angels. No one's getting wings when they die. Sorry to break it to you. He says we will be like the angels. We will share some characteristics with them. The main one being immortality. That in the age to come, we cannot and will not die. And so the whole human life cycle, birth, marriage, procreation, death, it will be superseded. It will be obsolete, which Jesus says will make the marriage relationship unnecessary. He says in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, if you are married, you should not be smiling right now. I know, for most, I'm not going to point anybody out. (laughs) For most of us, this probably makes us sad. But we need to remember what the Bible tells us elsewhere, that we will recognize and know our loved ones in eternity. And the quality of our relationships will be elevated, not diminished. They'll be even better than what we experience now. I like the way Mike McKinley puts it in his commentary on Luke's gospel. He says, God's power is such that he is able to create a world of greater joy friendship, and love in the life to come. In fact, the marriages that we enjoy here on earth are meant to give us a picture and foretaste of the far greater reality of the union with Christ that we will enjoy in eternity. Human marriage, great though it is, is merely a preview. Once the reality has come, it will no longer be necessary. And strange as this may seem now, it will not be missed. Now, we could go on, but but Jesus' point here was not to teach us about marriage and the eternal state. His point was to expose the Sadducees' question as ridiculous, to prove to them the reality of the future resurrection, which he goes on to do in verses 37 to 38. He, He points to Exodus 3 and the episode of the burning bush when God and Moses had a conversation and where God is described as saying, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, what makes this remarkable is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been dead for a long time. But God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they died a long time ago, so I don't know them anymore. They're gone. No, God is saying, I am still their God. They still exist. I still know them. Death was not the end for them. And so then Jesus gives us this stunning phrase in verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
for to him all are alive. So once again, for the third time in this chapter, Jesus brilliantly evades the trap of the religious leaders. And this time, they're so thoroughly defeated, we read in verse 40, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. The showdown at the temple has come to an end, and there is a clear winner. Now the question is, well, what does this mean for you and for me? What should we take away from this passage? Well, I think firstly, this passage shows us the brilliance of Jesus. Jesus expertly and brilliantly navigates the questions that are put to him. And these are not just any old questions from any old questioners. They were put to him by the religious and political elite. It was like us being questioned by the prime minister, the head of ASIO and the archbishop. I mean, it would be incredibly intimidating. And yet Jesus is not overawed. He's not outplayed. He is in complete control. You know, we often talk about the love of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, which we should. But what about the brilliance of Jesus? No one has ever taught like him or spoken like him. He is utterly brilliant. And yet it's not just enough for us to admire the brilliance of Jesus. Jesus demands more from us. He also demands a response. And this is also what we see in this passage. We must respond to Jesus. He has divine authority. He is God's king. He is the cornerstone. He is the one to whom you and I must humbly submit. And many of us have done that. We've given Jesus our yes. We've put our trust in him. But others of us are like the religious leaders. We might not be antagonistic towards Jesus like they were, but we have not yet placed our faith and our trust in him. Now, why didn't the religious leaders place their trust in Jesus? It was their fear, their fear of losing power, their fear of losing their position. Jesus was a threat to their popularity and their authority. And it might be the same for you. You might still be on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You haven't yet put all your faith and your trust in him. Sure, you come to church occasionally. You might have Christian friends, you might have grown up in a Christian home, but you haven't gone all in with Jesus. You're not really following him, and it could be because you're afraid of what you will lose. Religious leaders were afraid to lose position and power. You might be afraid to lose friends, or respect, or credibility, or career opportunity, or freedom of lifestyle, or money, or family, or whatever else. And you are right to a degree. I mean, Jesus said to us earlier in Luke's Gospels, he said, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now the point there is not that if we want to follow Jesus, we have to sell our home and give away all our savings. We have to get rid of our cars. We have to cancel our Netflix account. Of course, maybe we we will. But the point is that we must give 100% of our loyalty to Jesus point is not necessarily that we have to do these things but we do have to say that there is nothing in our life that is off limits to him if following jesus does require us to give up financial security to forego extracurricular activities for our kids to watch less netflix to cancel netflix to get up early on a sunday morning to lose the respect of some people 
even to lay down some of our plans and our dreams for our, for our lives in the future. If that's what it costs to follow Jesus, then so be it. Because to follow Jesus is costly. The religious leaders recognized this, but they weren't willing to pay the price. But here's what they failed to recognize, and here's what you and I cannot fail to recognize. That to follow Jesus will cost us, yes, but what we gain in Jesus is worth far more than anything we could lose. Because only in Jesus do we find everything that we need and everything that we're looking for. Only in Jesus do we find true cleansing, forgiveness of our sin. Only in Jesus do we find true belonging, adoption into God's family. Only in Jesus do we find true hope, life with God beyond the grave. And only in Jesus do we find true joy, restored relationship with God both now and forever. And so as we begin this journey through Jesus' final week, as we begin to approach the, the cross and, and the empty tomb, we are already being confronted with our response to Jesus. Will we trust him? Will we count the cost? Will we pay the price? Will we receive life from him? And if our answer to those questions is yes, then I don't think that we will ever regret it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your unending grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that we see the brilliance of Jesus in this passage. And thank you that he is the cornerstone, that he is your true king, that he is the one to whom we can put all our trust and know that we will never be put to shame, that we will never be disappointed, that to gain Jesus is worth more than anything you might lose or give up in this life. And Lord, that's not always easy, but it's worth it. And so help us to take the next step in following you. Help us to turn from whatever it might be in our life that we're afraid of losing and help us to give it all to you. Help us to say to you, Jesus, there is nothing in my life that is off limits. Lord, we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for this closing blessing before we sing together may the companionship of the man of sorrows and the power of the king of glory rest upon you this day and all your days